Hello, greetings and welcome. I'm John Gibbons and this is Alchemy. It's great to have your company again and we really hope you enjoy the show. We're free and on demand from iTunes and alchemyradio.net and you can follow us and join the community on Facebook and Twitter. So don't be shy, come on and say hello. We exist thanks to your kind donations, so thank you to everybody who does so via our website. We're completely non-profit and intend to stay that way. So, on to the show. Alchemy, alchemy, alchemy. Our guest this episode is Dr. Wayne Dorband. Wayne has a 30-plus year career as an environmental entrepreneur. He was a pioneer in environmental consulting, founded ATC Environmental and took it public in the mid-1980s. He is also a co-founder of Cherokee Investment and International Risk Group, two of the largest acquirers and redevelopers of environmentally impaired real estate in the world. Most recently, he has founded Dorband & Associates, a northern Colorado-based green consulting and technology group of companies. Wayne is also on the board of directors of the Institute of Economics, and I'm very pleased to welcome him for the first time to alchemy wayne how are things i'm doing great john i'm doing awesome how about yourself i'm extremely good in great form and all the better for speaking to you because the work that you do is quite frankly mind-blowing and i'm really looking forward to having an in-depth conversation about it but i'm going to put you on the spot as i do with every first time guest on the show wayne and i'm going to ask you how did you get from where you were to where you are now Wow, great question. So um, I've been I've been around the block a few times, and so um, I uh, spent a good part of my adult life sort of indulging in the mental and emotional side of you know create a success using finances and money as the primary guideline. And you know, I raised a family, and I'm I feel good about that. And at the same time, I was building multiple businesses. But the, you know, there, and I always stated that oh, I, I really care about uh, people and the planet and all those things. But the bottom line was that I was really more than anything focused on creating a financial kingdom as such and a future. And and I, I about 35 years that worked really really well. And then when we had this major recession that hit the U.S. in the 2008 2009 timeframe. Um, I got rocked pretty hard, and uh, bottom line is I really emotionally and, and financially started over again in the uh, late stages of the recession in 2012, 2013, and, and in that process, um, I changed my attitude of just 180 degrees to where uh, financial success really meant nothing to me at the time and and still means very little um it, I, I think that that you know if we are if i'm still healthy and, and i have the ability to dream and to care that that it's it, it, that i'm going to be able to take care of myself and my wife and she's very much on board with this mentality and we literally have changed our attitude like i said 180 degrees to where um we really just care today about helping others, helping the planet, helping people, and as we say, helping make the planet better. And, 
And so that's been, you know, a relatively recent adventure, uh, one that's been very fulfilling um, and uh, it sort of has brought us to where we're at today. Well, I can imagine how fulfilling that must be. And it kind of begs the question then, Wayne, does it lead you to question what you had been doing up to that? Or do you see the skills that you learned, even though it was about a financial empire and the acquisition of things, do you see that as a lesson that got you to the stage that you're at now on a more kind of esoteric or even spiritual level? Oh, it certainly was. Yeah, I, I, I don't I don't look back and, and say, wow, I just sort of had a wasted many, many years. Instead, no, I feel like I've always felt like everything we do in life is a uh, a learning exercise and and really strongly feel that if you're not progressing you're falling backwards and that you're very rarely in a state of of you know stability um, so uh, I think that that everything I've done uh, in my life to this point has been a learning experience but it this this change was pretty dramatic and so um, you know I'm still finding the things that that I did. Um, for all those years before that, you know, I'm, I'm learning how they can be of value and, and just using them in a different way. But, but no, every, everything that I've done previous to that time, I feel like there's value in it. And, you know, you look back and you wish there were some things you would have done differently. You're always feeling that way, but you can't do that. You know, you can't mm. live in the past. You have to live moving ahead. So, oh, and there's certainly a spirituality to it. I, I've, I've always been a spiritual person and and uh, I feel very much that, that we're under the guidance of a power greater than ourselves. And, and if anything, this, you know, this change in attitude has enhanced that, but I've always had it. And, and you know, it's, it has evolved through, through time, but, but it, it's still, I, you know, I can't have a beautiful day like I'm in right here in Colorado today and, and not just be marveled at uh, how... Um, how connected that we are with each other and with every every living thing uh, and every inanimate object that there is on the planet. So. It sounds like you found a real symbiosis then with nature, but also with the real world as well. And I don't mean that nature isn't the real world, but quite often many people in today's society see that there is a detachment between the perceived real world of day-to-day living and then that nature is something that is just there on the side for maybe the odd Sunday walk or whatever it might be. But it sounds to me as you're speaking as if you've, you've really found a wholeness or a oneness and that everything is connected in a sense for you. Yeah, I've, I've, I've tried to. I mean, I, and I've always felt very connected to um, to the planet. And, and you're right, a lot of people don't necessarily feel that way. Um, I can always get my strength from being outside, being um, in touch with um, with the natural elements more than sitting at a desk and or sitting and and doing you know something that is more intellectual or more um, inanimate object focused. Um, so I, th- that hasn't changed. I mean, I've, I've, my mom said that I kind of came out of the womb wanting to be outside and and put my nose to the air and my eyes to what I could see and just be in that way. So that hasn't changed much. Um, but I, I think it, it. You know, I, I I've changed my. Uh, you know, I, I, I've, I put more priority on it. Part of that is getting older too, by the way. I, 
I, I certainly feel a lot more mortal um, all, all the time. So, you know, because I was younger, I, I didn't ever really even accept the fact that other than some accident that, that life was going to end very, very soon. So, um, and now I become much more in tune with the fact that this last moment, this could be my last, you know, this mm. yours and I conversation here might be the last thing I ever do. So, um, and I, so I think I live more in the moment today than I ever have. And, and I try to, at least I try to realize that, you know what, I'm going to do the very best with this instant in time. And I really can't have anything to do with what I did with that past instant. And then I can plan for the future also. So I, I, I still try to, uh, plan ahead, live the moment, and really don't worry about what happened in the past. So that's what that's a, what a great position to be in. I think that's probably the essence of being wise. I, I I really I aspire to that. I must say, and I think most people do if they really have a look at themselves deep down. So to bring that attitude and that experience into your work at the moment and that connection with the planet, let's start to talk a little bit about your work. And what it is that you're doing now that excites you at the moment? Yeah, thank you. Um, really, two things um, uh, that are at the top of the list. However, I will say that I am truly a Renaissance man and, and a re Renaissance person, and that there hardly is anything that I can't get excited about. I just I thirst for knowledge, thirst for just new things and even though i'm not skilled at some things for example i love music love art but i'm a terrible i can't hardly draw a stick man and you know i can actually play a little bit on a couple of instruments but i actually am I, I'm, I'm not patient enough to really spend the time to learn them really well and never have been so i you know i just enjoy everything but the two things that i'm doing today in business that are exciting um one of them is is a uh, a, a long-term uh, interest, and that's that. I really believe that we um, we have done a lot over the last 200 years, really. Let's say since, since the start of the Industrial Revolution, which is probably 150 years ago, um, to degrade this planet. And I don't think we've done it intentionally. I think we don't we don't know what we've done in, in many cases when we're we're strip mining or we're um, we're foresting um, in a in a you know really intense way or or we're building cities and really not thinking about how that's affecting the land around instead i just think we're doing that we're, we're just sort of moving ahead as a as a human race but i i believe that we're beginning to realize i think there's a lot bigger portion of humanity that's realizing today that the signs of degradation are out there they abound and and they're most obvious in urban areas. And so for the last 35 years, I've concentrated on a part of my business, which was to um, remediate, uh, revitalize um, properties that have mainly have buildings on them, large buildings in many cases, corporate-type structures, military bases, and so on, all over the world, actually, um, and put them back into some kind of productive use. And usually that has involved cleaning up contaminated soils, contaminated waters, contaminated air. So now I see a new revolution occurring, and it's what I'm really excited and I'm working on, which is land that doesn't have um, buildings as being its primary element. Still could have buildings on it, could have a farmhouse, or could have several farm buildings, a barn or whatever. But 
the land is what's degraded. And sometimes it's been degraded by contamination, but mostly it's been contaminated by man's use um, and overgrazing, um, again, harvesting timber in an inappropriate way, mm. mining in an inappropriate way. And so um, I am doing um, projects and, and being involved with a, a, a group of people that we think has uh, the right kind of technical skills that can take those properties, have the vision to revitalize them, and turn them back into something that, that is productive and has a, a long-term future being used in the way that they would be used moving ahead. So that's number one. Number two is what I, I think I've been very visible at for the last year, mm-hmm. um, and that is that um, I formed a group called the Economic Action Team, and that acronym is, is one that was somewhat of intentional, uh, which stands for EAT, and um, and there's that word action in there is very important, and, and obviously when you eat, so as we use that word as, as that term as a word, we're doing an action, you know, and it's an action we have to do. Um, we can't survive without eating in one way or another. And so the whole idea of using that acronym EAT, Economic Action Team, is that there is action involved. It's not just a sedentary process. And, and so I'll, uh, I'm sure you'll ask me some more questions. I'll talk about that. But about 11 months ago, coming up on 11 months, still 10, I guess, 10 months and three weeks ago, we started this team. Um, and we um, hoped that maybe at the end of a year um, that we might have 1,000, 1,500 people that were involved in it. But instead, we've almost got 9,000. We'll, we'll reach 9,000 this week. I would guess that by the end of the first year, we'll have close to 11, 12,000 and people all over the world um, who are really hoping to do this simple thing, which is to help themselves and others. So it's not just helping themselves, but helping others too, to make people and the planet better. And by the way, that's the definition of that word, economics. So, that's the project that's been very captivating over the last year. I've probably spent, you know, more of my time doing that than I have doing anything else. Um, very, very passionate about it. It has reached the point where it needs more people to be actively involved instead of just passively involved in this community, of which they're, like I said, are getting close to 9,500. 9, but, but now we're at the point where we're going to need to get a lot more of those people involved in a more active sort of way. And it's sort of gotten to the point where if I just try to lead it alone moving ahead, I think it'll be detrimental. And so uh, that's uh, that's what I've just been incredibly passionate about over the last year, those two topics. And in the work that you do, it's so obvious that you are incredibly passionate about it because so much of it seems to be completely selfless. I mean, you did speak about helping yourself, but I really like the idea that you seem to espouse that helping others is helping yourself at the same time, that they're not necessarily two disparate things. They are mutually uh, acceptable ideas. So when you talk about the term economics, essentially, am I correct in my understanding that it's, it's the maintenance of natural resources in ways that are economically sound. It's not pie in the sky. This is something that can happen and does happen in your case and in the case of the people around you now in the real world, yeah? Yes, that's correct. And, and 
you know, there's a lot of those words out there that are adjectives related to probably similar meanings, sustainable, you'll hear, and regenerative, and holistic, and resilient. Um, and, and the word economics was made up by a really good friend of mine about 25 years ago. His name was Dennis Weaver. Uh, Dennis is dead now, but Dennis was an actor um, in the U.S., at least pretty well known for some television and movies that he'd done. But, but he was better known as a man. He was just an amazing human being, married to the same woman for 63 years before he died, um, lived in a, a nurseship home that he built and um, just cared about people on the planet. was just an amazingly caring man. He was the president of the, the Screen Actors Guild. And I've never, I've literally never heard a person say, um, uh, you know, anything other than really positive about him. I've never heard a negative thing about him, as they say. And, and so he was a friend, a mentor. And when he died, he asked me if that I would carry on and with this nonprofit called the Institute of Economics that he had founded. And I just sort of decided if I'm going to do that, I'm going to make this word something that is really meaningful of all those things that embody those other words I use. So sustainability, um, regeneration, holistic, um, resiliency, and all of them, as, as, as you said, I think they're all intended to mean um, something that is real world. It's just not a thought. And so, yes, very much the idea is that economics has to embody an economic side to it or else it just isn't real world. It isn't something that, that is going to persist and, and, and occur for a long period of time. And so then a big part of that presumably is d- discovering innovations and innovations in a, in a green way, to use that term. What would be some of the more exciting ones for you um, that, that have come to light at the moment through the Institute of Economics? Yeah, awesome. I think, thank you for that. I'm going to start out with one that has not come to fruition, but it's one that I still think has huge upside. And it's a great example of the kinds of things we've done. And this one came to us about five years ago, and it came from a very typical inventor. So we work with a lot of inventors and technology developers and futurists and dreamers. And and, and the key is they really have to be doers. And, and this mm. fella um, had had, I think, about 40 different inventions that he had patented. And when I met him, he was working on one that, and again, still has not come to fruition, but it was a very, very simple but innovative way to harness wind power. So we almost all can, you know, put close our eyes probably and picture the way that wind is currently harnessed and, and made into power. And it's, you know, it's, it's some kind of a propeller or a, a spinning device, which the wind is hitting. And then that device is, is connected through gears and, and is then creating power that is, that is translated into electricity and then is is used for uh, that's the out you know that's the output of the system yeah well this fella created something that picture a uh, a pipe organ um where um when somebody's pushing on pedals is blowing air up into some tubes and that air is creating a sound well his technology was the opposite of that instead it was using wind to not create a sound, but instead to impact 
uh, essentially a speaker so that when you use an electronic speaker, if you ever looked at one, mm-hmm. um, that electricity that coming through it is causing it to vibrate. And that vibration is what's giving off sound. Instead, his system is the opposite. It takes the wind, which he creates into sound inside of a tube. Like I said, it looks like a pipe organ. And then instead of creating sound, it uses the sound, which, by the way, you can't hear it. Yeah. It's frequencies above the, what the human ear can have. Um, and it turns that directly into electricity. So there are no moving parts. Everything is, is done using very you know, realistic science. And yet he has not been able to get that to be, um, and we have not been able to help him to where we would like to get that accepted yet. So that one I start with because it, it, it's so simple. I think you can think about it if you think a little bit and understand it. But it is an example in that every probably 10 innovations we see, only about two or three of them will come to fruition. So those are the ones I'm going to talk about now. But but some of the most exciting ones don't happen. And my whole point there is that you got to keep trying and we have to keep looking. We have to keep looking for other people's ideas. And, and I just encourage anybody who's got an idea, if you're passionate about it, you know, don't let other people steal your dream and tell you that it doesn't work and even if it doesn't seem to work for you for some time keep after it keep failing and a thomas jeff edison i started to say jefferson um thomas edison although thomas jefferson did a lot of the same things too um but a thomas edison sort of way where thomas edison would say i didn't invent the light bulb i just figured out 9999 ways not to invent it and i got lucky one time (laughs) well that's that's essentially what's happened. So now the kinds of technologies that we've worked on that, that have worked and that are working, um, are a lot of them are in the ag area, in the agricultural realm. And they involve innovative, both I'll call it outdoor and indoor types of technologies. And in the outdoor realm, I'm very excited about what um, are really very old and yet just being now today understood better and well enough that people are are beginning to use them which is multi-species farming rather than monoculture so rather than planting a row of corn or planting a whole field full of of rice instead we go back to having ecosystems that we're now farming that are much like they're they're mimicking what occurs in nature but we're doing it in a more intense way much like a field of rice would be or a field of corn. And now we're, we're not just culturing one species, we're culturing a whole bunch of different species. And we're doing it where we're very mindful of the balance of that system um, in, the, in the natural sense and to where we can use a technique that, this is one, a word I'm going to be stealing from my partner, Mark Shepard, but where he calls it stun, which is um, strikingly total utter neglect. So instead of a field where every year we have to go in and and harvest it and then plow it again and get rid of weeds and all of this work, instead we farm something that is so natural and yet managed, but managed in a different way, managed in the way we plant it and the way we get it started. Mm. And then the way we control all the elements that come to it, the water, the air, um, the, uh, the, the other organisms, plants and animals that are in its ecosystem and so we manage that and that's called restorative holistic 
management and multi-species oftentimes very focused on perennials plants that you plant and they grow for long periods of time trees for a great example and shrubs but you know things like asparagus and there are a lot of perennial grasses where you just plant them and year after year they come back hmm. mushrooms are examples of perennials that will come back and you don't have to re replant them year after year so that's that's one example are we talking about an expanded form of permaculture essentially is it almost like taking the idea of permaculture and developing it further so that we have nature is doing the work for us and we're able to then kind of accept its bounty, if you want to put it that way? Yeah, except I would say it is permaculture. I, and I, I, I didn't have the pleasure of getting to know Bill Mollison, but because he has recently died, and I think he's a little more visible because of that, um, I think Bill would say that what, an appropriate permaculture a permaculture living circumstance would be one that's enduring and would be one where you didn't have to spend all of your time working to make it right. And and so I, I actually think it is permaculture. So it's a it's the embodiment of it. Um, I think it goes a little further than permaculture in that um, it it, it can, a lot of times, permaculture is really focused on individuals mm. to where this approach would be focused on the ecosystem itself and not so human focused. It happens that humans are the ones that are getting it started and that are managing it. But really, those humans could die. They, they could move out of the area. Someone else could come back to that location 10 years, 100 years later, and you would still have a system that's producing which is the way it was historically on the earth before man had all the influence that, that man has had. And so in the, here in where I live, um, we had bison, buffalo that were roaming and they were, there were probably more of them than there are cattle, our domesticated livestock today. And the, the Native Americans that lived here, and there were good numbers of them, they learned how to be in harmony with those bison and learned how to, you know, to keep them in a balanced number over time. And that's probably more of, of how this restorative management system would differ a little bit from permaculture, which is pretty human-centric. Um, and yet, um, the, the restorative approach obviously needs to benefit humans, but it's going to persist um, after it's developed even if humans aren't involved in the equation anymore. Sure. So that's, I think, uh, the, the, the way I would just describe the, the subtle difference that there might be. And it sounds uh, so holistic, to use one of the words that you used earlier, and almost too good to be true in a sense. I mean, let's say I'm just sitting here and I'm thinking to myself, right, that sounds amazing, but how can, because I've been brought up in an environment where we have farms and agriculture in the traditional sense how can it be that we can just plant some stuff and nature takes over to our benefit it sounds just too good to be true yeah and that's that is that's a that's the right kind of attitude to have um because of a lack of knowledge um and so what we're trying to do is to create enough um, um examples prototype of locations where it does work and, and what we what I described has occurred and people can come and see it in action. So I live in one. Um, I'm looking out the window right now at 
at uh, 160 acres that I acquired 11 years ago that was uh, highly overgrazed, uh, de- degraded um, agriculture area. It had been cattle, grazed by cattle. And then by na- there's, there's native animals here too, so by deer and by elk, but, but the overgrazing was by cattle. Um, it hadn't been properly managed for at least 20 or 30 years. Mm. Um, and one of the impacts of that overgrazing is that it, this, this is a, a canyon, as most people would call it. We call it a valley, um, where, where I'm sitting is 300, um, almost 300 meters lower than the, um, the, the sides of this valley. And from one side to the other at the peak of the top is probably about a mile and a half. And then the reason I'm calling it a valley rather than a canyon is that down in the, the bottom, it's a, it's a very nice flat agro, you know, for, range kind of an area rather than forests or cliffs, which people usually think about when they're thinking about canyons. Well, obviously, there was a stream here at some point. I mean, and no one would argue, oh, no, there's never been water there. Well, when I bought it, however, there wasn't any water there. It was, it was dry. And the fellow I bought it from had owned it for 20 years. And he said, I've never seen water. There hasn't been water. I, I can see that way back in the Ice Ages, probably there was, there was some water, but there isn't any water here. Well, there was. And my professional background is understanding water, both groundwater, water under the surface that you don't see, as well as surface water. And I could tell that there very likely was water that was very close to the surface. And my opinion was that that overgrazing, the water had known that it needed to get out of the way. Those, those animals were greatly hurting it. And so it went underground. Well, with just a little bit of work, and I don't mean a lot of work, just some some uh, excavating and, and some and some areas that I really believe there were springs, water right below the surface that was ready to come back up again. Here we are 11 years later, and I have 18 ponds. I have a stream that runs year-round. I have a, a, a waterfall on one segment that people just said no way could ever occur. And we brought back a system that had gone into hiding because of man's influence. And so all we did was two things. We, we did the observation to know where there could be water. We excavated, pulled up some soil to get to, these, to the water that was there. Mm-hmm. And we stopped the land management that was being done previously, which was the overgrazing by cattle. So I let land sit for about three years without any grazing at all mainly worked on cleaning on, on getting the water back into the system and I was I'm able to manage a lot of what's called the watershed so I went upstream from where we were at and I put some additional springs in and did some more work on the on the, the land that was there so today um, now we are back into where we graze it selectively we hay it selectively we've planted um, a lot of perennial vegeta- vegetation, trees, shrubs, berries um, that produce food. And when you come here today, you're gonna, you would see a system that is beautiful, for one, um, that is long-term. It's going to produce food for many, many years to come. And people live on it, and we enjoy it. So we work with it, but we also fish and we hunt and we do other things that all have, um, you know, value from a 
recreational as well as a food production perspective. It sounds absolutely idyllic and surely it's aspirational for what we would all want. But there will be people listening who prefer an urban environment and think, no, I'm perfectly happy to go down to the local supermarket and buy whatever food. What would you say to them and how does this system help them, Wayne? Yeah, great, great question. And first, I, I think that's the majority of people uh, that, that you described. And, mm. and urban areas can be changed, and I believe they need to be changed. And here's, I'm going to very simply tell you why. There's not an urban area in the world of, let's say, more than a million people. And there are, I don't I haven't looked at the stats recently, but hundreds of those now that are that size or larger, that if outside food transportation was cut off. So if roadways bringing food in by trucks, if railways bringing food in by rail, if um, very little of our food comes in by airplane, but, but let's just say airplanes were stopped. And if it's coastal, if there were um, ships or boats that were bringing in food were stopped for whatever reason. And here in the United States, most of our food moves by trucks. Mm. And and so if there was a, a either weather related or terrorism related, uh, you know, natural cause or, or something that is it's not natural, it's terrorism, war and such in any metropolitan area. If food was cut off, people would be starving in three to four days. We only store three to four days of food in all metropolitan areas of the world. And if you think that people wouldn't get barbaric when their families aren't getting food, you're wrong. And there's all kinds of evidence of that throughout history. And some of it very recent. In Mongolia in 2012, when there was a drought and there were food shortages that began to occur in major areas, 200,000 people were killed by food riots. And we don't, you know, Mongolia isn't on people's radar screen as a very you know, populous area, and broadly it's not, but there are two or three very large urban areas and people literally killed each other in the streets because they couldn't get food. So that's very dramatic. Mm. That's out up there on the edge. But one other example is that Havana, Cuba, 10 million person city today, a little bit smaller when, when this happened, but let's say it was seven or eight million at the time when the U.S. stopped all food and, and, and literally even put a, put a barrier around it to where they could not get food in from the outside, the Cubans, instead of just throwing up their hands and moving out or doing whatever, they started growing food everywhere in Havana. And every place where there was an open piece of dirt, people would, would grow things. People would grow on their rooftops. People were growing in their, on their decks because they had to. And then one more example, which was a little farther back, Oh, by the way, now that food supplies are coming back in, you're seeing those gardens just go away. So, so humans get very um, lazy when it comes to food. And I'm, so I'm going to get back to your answering your question about why, we, why you wouldn't just go to the supermarket. Mm. But one other example is that in the U.S. during World War II in the 1940s, um, so many of our men went to go fight overseas and they had to have food that the U.S. government 
encouraged, didn't mandate, but encouraged people to grow their own gardens. They called them victory gardens because they they asked them to produce more of their personal food on their own homestead, you know, in their home areas or in their neighborhoods. We went from having 3% of American food come from any kind of, of gardening to 43% wow. by the end of World War II. And and then when the the need stopped again because the servicemen came home and now you know the food could be distributed guess what we went right back down to 3% again and that's about what the percentage has been ever since in the United States so it took crisis it took a, a real crisis situation but we adapted um, we did the, we made the change the cubans made the change um, and so uh, from a sort of a crisis mode it's one reason we should be producing more of our own food. However, the better reason that you should be doing it today is really health-related issues. Yeah. Obesity is such a huge problem. Malnourishment, which doesn't mean people are starving. They're actually getting enough food, but it's the wrong kind. So it's causing diabetes. It's causing um, mental disorders. It's, it's increasing cancer, any number of other human health-related issues because people are eating food that they get at a grocery store that they have no idea where it came from. They have no idea what's in it. They haven't been educated enough to even read the labels if they're on them. And so they, they think food is grown in a box or in a can um, or in a plastic package and, and their nutritional value. So from the, from the short term, absent crisis, the reason that people really should think more about locally produced food. And we can produce food in the in an urban way, um, in two different ways. We can take advantage of outdoor growing situations like Havana, Cuba did, like the U.S. population did during World War II. And then, as you asked me earlier, the other kind of technology that we're doing, we're working on at the Institute of Economics and with the Economic Action Team is what we call controlled environment agriculture, which is growing things indoors, really, where lighting is controlled and air temperature and air quality is controlled. And and therefore, we can grow food in a more intense way. We can be conservative of water. We can know exactly what we're getting for nutritional qualities. And, and we can do it on a very small scale. It can be done in a basement. It can be done on a back porch. It can be done in a garage. It can be done on a very, very small scale and produce some of the food that a given person might need in an urban area if they chose to do it. And what would an example, Wayne, then say somebody is living in an urban area and they've got a bit of space in the basement? What would be an example of the type of setup they had? We don't have to go into too much detail, but just uh, just to give a rough kind of guide for anyone who might be new to it. Uh, what could they do if they were to, say, take the advice and the guidance of what it is you're doing with EAT? Yeah, and I would say there's there's a simple one, which is is sometimes called aquaponics. I'm not going to use that word because I think it can give mixed messages. So I'm going to call it backyard or, or you know, home aquaculture mm-hmm. because it really does imply that your foods are grown in water. That's what aquaculture means. And so then you would think, well, how am I going to grow, you know, my tomatoes in water? Or how am I going to grow my lettuce in water? Well, the, the plant that grow that you're eating isn't in the water, but the roots are. And the roots will do very well growing in a water base. And so you could build um, a four-foot 
square, uh, a little over a meter square system that is, let's say, uh, two meters high, so six feet high, um, that could produce a lot of your greens and and fruits or fruity vegetables, so tomatoes, squash, um, onions, uh, no, excuse me, onions, peppers, anything that's a fruit. Uh, by the way, I, I, I didn't mean to say onions because they're a rooted crop and they, they, they don't grow as well in this water kind of an environment. And you would also have animals in this system and usually fish that you think about. And those fish would be producing protein for you. So on a regular basis, you could be harvesting the plants that you would be eating and you could be harvesting the fish that you would also be eating. And you could have a system that would be ongoing and, and certainly require some of your maintenance, but that could be taught. And that if you, um, if you wanted to, you could be growing a certain portion of your diet right in your basement or in your garage or on your back porch. Um, and, and you could learn how to do that and you could do it for a relatively small amount of money. So essentially, you could feed yourself from your basement. Yes, at least a portion. I'm not saying you can feed everything that you yeah. would need, but you could uh, you could get um, you could take quite a burden off of of uh, food that's coming from the outside. And and let's just say this: let's say you were a person who really enjoyed um, growing uh, fish, and you really didn't care that much about plants, and you really weren't even very good at it mm. so you would have a system where there were plants there also but but mainly you focused on the fish side and let's say your neighbor which is the opposite of you they really didn't even like fish um but they realized that if they had fish in their system it would help their plants and they were really good with tomatoes mm. so they grew tomatoes let's say i had another neighbor that also really didn't was that they weren't good with fish, but they liked lettuce. So they just grew lettuce. And yet another neighbor that liked basil, and they just grew basil. And yet another neighbor that liked snails. And so instead of fish, they grew snails. So now all of a sudden you've got these five neighbors and you're each growing different things because they're your passions. They're what you do best. And now you cooperatively work together and you eat some of each of what the five of you are producing. And that's the kind of farming that I believe we're going to see more and more of and that we're trying to encourage people to think about. Cooperative or collaborative growing to where you do what you enjoy and what you do best and, and you work together with somebody else that's doing something just a little different. But you're making enough of what you're doing to feed multiple people other than just yourself. And the other person's doing the same thing with some other kind of food. And it makes so much sense because you have that mutual sense of cooperation as opposed to relying on something that's completely centralized and out of your hands. There's a real sense of power with that as well. And I'd imagine there's a satisfaction from it too, is there? Yeah, I mean, I think you realize that you're not just helping yourself. It's where we started out today. You're helping others. So there's a, I think everybody gets a satisfaction about of the, knowing that what they are doing is not just benefiting themselves. Um, secondly, like I said, usually you're doing something in that process that you're not only good at, but that you like. So you're doing what you enjoy. Um, and then you're right. You don't have to rely as much on outside uh, forces that you don't have any control over. Like I said, transportation loss for one. Um, and then 
um, you have that benefit. So yes, it, it is a very collaborative um, sort of a process. And imagine then on a more macro level, let's say I'm a farmer, I have a big amount of land at my disposal and I've been farming using traditional methods. If we were to apply uh, some, some of the uh, methods that you're using, for example, on your land, is that then an economically viable model to use for profit, for example? If that's, if that's how I earn my living, I grow food and sell it, is it more beneficial not just to the planet or the land, but is it more beneficial to the pocket as well? I think I think we believe it can be, and and we believe we have evidence that it is. However, if you've been growing very traditionally um, in a farming sense for your whole life, maybe maybe it's even been generational. Maybe your parents did it before you, and your grandparents. Mm. It's probably not something you can transition to across the whole your farm um, immediately. And I wouldn't even recommend that. I would say instead. You take some small portion of it and you convert that. So I, we work with four or five of our members that are, used to be hog farmers in a big way. And, and they, they got disenchanted with the methods they were using, um, which were you know, highly um, stressful on the hogs. And so they, they just became sensitive to that. And they had these barns that they'd been using for hogs that were no longer being used. And they said, well, could we grow something else in there? And so we have helped them learn how to grow aquatic animals because they've got these big pits. They're called farrowing barns, by the way, where they grow baby pigs. And and um, and so we've encouraged them to convert those rather than to let them sit vacant or to tear them down, but to continue to do their other kinds of farmings at the same time. Because just to immediately overnight transition, you probably aren't going to see um, economic gains fast enough. However, that said, if you transition over a two, three, five-year period to where you're moving less and less of what you're doing in a traditional way, more and more of what you're doing in a restorative, in all those adjectives, in an economic way, Hmm. I fully believe it could be profitable. And and if you look at agriculture as, as an industry on a worldwide basis at this commercial, corporate, industrial level, it is not profitable anyway. It is subsidized. Here in the United States, most of the Western world, we're buying our food for less than what it really costs to produce it. So it's either subsidized by government, it's subsidized by, um, by a number of other factors, and where we're paying less than what we should for the food because because in the short run, a lot of these industrial methods have worked. They're producing food. It's not very good food, in many cases, nutritionally, but it's getting done. And so if I was one of those big farmers, and I work with a lot of these, I would never encourage them to just overnight switch what they're doing entirely. Sure. Instead, it would be to transition out of it and learn what works for them. But that's that said, once you get there, and if if you're focused on profit, not on revenue, you may not make as much money in terms of total revenue, but your profits are going to be dramatically higher. Mm. Let me just use an example here on my own farm. I mentioned those farms, those, excuse me, those ponds that I have, that I've developed. I built them 10 years ago. And 
I don't do anything for two or three years at a time to manage them. Now, this year, I happened to go in just recently and do a fairly major upgrade of them because they'd been, what happens with ponds over time is they um, mature. It's called succession, is that sediment comes into them. It comes from upstream. Over time, you have to remove some of that. You have to move the clock back by getting getting uh, getting rid of it. So we went in the spring, and we took two days. By the way, this didn't take forever, but two days of working with some equipment and some manpower, and we 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 re-dredged them. We 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 deepened them again back to what they were like ten years ago. That's the only major work we've done on them in ten years. Otherwise, we owe annual inputs into them. In other words, we don't feed them. We don't add any additional to them. And yet, here are the things that they do. They produce, two of the ponds produce ornamental fish. We have what are called fancy goldfish or koi in them. And one day a year, we harvest them in the fall. And we, we have about 20 to 25 pet stores our owners that we've worked with that come and we make it a party for that day. And we harvest about 2,000, anywhere between 1,500 and 2,000 fish that have grown naturally in those ponds for the last year. And these pet store owners buy them. And I make about $20,000 in revenue from that one day of effort. Wow. And it's a party. We have fun. That's the only time during the year that I see most of those owners of those stores and they come in with their their fish tanks and their trucks and they they each buy from anywhere from 100 to one guy buys about 300 fish and and some of them buy even as little as 20 to 30 and they take them back to their stores and they're selling them to the public and they like this because the fish they have to buy other times during the year come from way far away from Florida or from Fiji mm. and they die they they have really low survival rates and yet the fish that they get from this because they're they're farmed in a natural way have really high survival so that's one thing we do same thing we do at the same time of the year is we have another pond that has three edible kinds of fish largemouth bass smallmouth bass and yellow perch and we we do the same thing with them we have a day where chefs that I that are my clients come in and we do the same thing. We capture about a thousand fish in this, and we sell them for seven dollars a pound. And there's about eighteen hundred pounds that we harvest during that day. So you can do the math on the numbers here. And remember, the other one I said we did about two thousand, and the average revenue we made from it's about twenty thousand dollars every year on our harvest of the fish that we have for commercial purposes. It's about another ten thousand dollars. Then I do fishing tournaments throughout the year. I have people that come in and they have, they bring little kids in um, and we, we actually do that as a donation. And then I have professional fishermen that come in and they'll pay as much as $500 a day to bring clients with them to catch because there are trophy fish in these ponds. Mm. And then finally, I do dog training, which is something that, that it's simulated hunting. And people come from all over the Western United States to train their dogs. Well, I do that as a hobby. So not only do I not have to work, I get to play with them. I got to have fun. So this last Saturday, I had a group of about 12 people with their dogs, and we played for the morning, and they they thanked me so much 
for taking their money because I charge them. They're not thanking me for them paying, but they're thanking from the ability to be able to do this. So in total, these ponds generate about $50,000 a year in revenue, no costs associated with John. And it's my fun. Well, how many farmers are making $50,000 on intense weeding, fertilizing, putting pesticides on, and farming their fields, even on massive thousand hectare or acre ranches, not very many of them. So this is a very viable financial means. It sounds like a complete no-brainer to me, Wayne. It should be. I mean, who, who, who doesn't want to earn money while having fun? So many people complain about what it is they do and, oh, well, I have to go and earn a living or whatever and just grin and bear it. But, I mean, you've just described how you're having fun and earning money with little or no kind of effort or work. There's, there's no blood, sweat and tears going into it there at all. Yeah, what is, you're doing it because you love it. Like I'm sitting, I'm looking the very top end of this farm. This pond system is right, below me about 200 yards and I look down towards it from where, where we're talking right now and, I, and I'm actually having a little problem in the top two ponds we've had very little rainfall this last year really we were in a, hopefully not moving back into but we had a drought cycle that occurred about four years ago and maybe we're moving back into it so I have less water coming into these ponds than I've had and and they're, they're down a little bit in their level. And that's, they're the two ponds that have the koi, the fancy goldfish in them. Mm. And I'm a little worried about it. I, I may have to do some management. But the, the thing is, it's, it's what I intellectually love, love to do. So I find myself even thinking, well, what if I do have to manage them sometime over the next six months, let's say, which is our growing season now. It's starting to warm up and we're having, you know, we don't have freezes at night as, uh, anymore. And if I do have to do some work with them, so what I do now is I just go down and look at the fish every day. I look, oh, okay, they're, they look like they're doing all right. And yeah, the water's down about two or three inches here in height. Um, if it gets down much lower, I may have to figure out how I get a little bit more water into this. So intellectually, I'm doing some things. And here's my point. that You can't just do these things without some knowledge. Yeah. Um, that's where you either are going to have to enlist the help of others that have the knowledge that will help teach you so you gain it and you can that's very doable or you have to have it in the first place i had it in the first place john so it's it's not you know this is not a burden for me i'm making use of what i went to school for a number of years to learn where I, that's the other thing that i think is really cool about it unfortunately there are so many people that have gone to school in the sciences now and I'm not talking about tech, but in, in, in biology or chemistry or, or ag science or mm. physics and such, who don't have jobs in those fields. Instead, they're going into tech or something else because that's where there's money. Instead, they could maybe look at a profession doing something like this. And I, that's what we really hope we can encourage more and more people to think about and that they could do. And is that encouragement then wrapped up in the economic action team and the eat project online it is yes and, and so what we decided to do about a year ago as i said was we just decided that we would try something where we would have experts in in topics that were economic as it turns out most of what we've done over the last the first year here has been ag related so it's food related we haven't done as much with things like uh, wind power, like we talked about earlier, or solar, or or even alternative fuel cars and such, even though we're going to do that. But mm. 
but we just decided we'd focus focus on ag initially. Um, so I started teaching a course um, June sixth last year on backyard aquaculture. Essentially, that topic you asked before could could someone not learn to be able to do it in their basement? Well, yes, they could have gone for fifteen weeks in a row. I taught for an hour each week, and then I even asked questions for another, sometimes up to another hour. So probably an average of an hour and a half a week in a webinar setting that was free, that anybody could attend. And then we would record those teachings and the replays would also be available. Well, we would leave the replays up for a week for free. So if a person couldn't catch it live because they were in a different time zone or something was in the way, they worked during that time or whatever, they could still watch the replay. We still do that today, by the way. And, and then the goal was when a teacher like myself were to finish a course, we would take that, we'd edit it, we'd, we'd add some more material to it if the, if the teacher felt it was needed. And then we would offer that separately as a course. And so... We're just getting started doing that and uh, with those. We've done all the first steps. So we started with two of us teaching in June last year. Myself about backyard aquaculture and Mark Shepard about where we started. I was telling you about the one thing that we're really passionate about, which is the multi-species outdoor farming. Yeah. We called it restoration agriculture. So Mark Shepard has taught a course that is actually still going on. He's 40-some weeks into it called Forest Ecology. And again, same thing. It's live every week. It's free. Anybody can sign up for it and can and can come on and and uh, watch and or listen. By the way, you don't. You can even just call in by phone if you don't have an internet connection. Um, and then when he's done, which he's going to be finished actually in several weeks, we'll turn that into a course. Well, that's a real long one. No one else has gone nearly that long. We had a course, for example, on um, how to market your farm if you have a farm on the internet that was just two weeks long by a guy named Nick Burton. We had a course on um, the economics of farming from a guy named Hugh Goble that was six weeks long. Most of our courses are probably 10 to 12 weeks. They're in that range. And again, we're just now getting to the point where we're able to edit them and turn them into courses. So that pond example that I gave and all the things that we did, I did a course on that for 11 weeks called Ecological Aquaculture. And that is one that's available now as a course that you don't have to be a member of EAT to buy it. Mm -hmm. Or if you are a member of EAT, you get it for free. It's there for you. And, um, and so, yes, the idea was to have experts, we call them doers, not just somebody who happened to take a course last week. Yeah. We, we only will allow people to teach that are those that have done it. And we don't allow them to pitch. They can't can't sell anything. They only teach. So it'd be a lot like going to a college course or a high school course or a, an online, except it's just teaching and it's by experts. Well, we're now up to where this week we have 11 sessions um, of teaching, all in different topics. Um, so um, we'll have shrimp aquaculture, which I'm just finishing teaching. We'll have Mark doing forest ecology. We have another fellow named Evan Folds doing soil fertility. We have another fellow named William Horvath doing permaculture as an apprentice. What would you do if you're just starting out doing permaculture? Mm. By the way, these teachers are all over the world. They're in various different places. We've had two different Irish coaches um, teach um, one on 
um, um, what's called emotional health. So using uh, some treatment methods, using acupuncture and your fingers and touch, and that she taught that for about four or five weeks. And another another one on another lady who taught about nutrition. Um, I'm just giving examples in, uh, of the two Irish coaches that yeah. we had, and they were each courses of three to three to five weeks in length, I think. So our goal is to get to 168 hours a week. Well, why is that the goal? That's how many hours there are in a week. <laughs> <laughs> so that would mean that if we were ever reaching it, we'd be teaching 24 hours a day. And that's a ways off. You know, we won't get to that for quite a while. And what we're constrained by now, and the message that I really hope that people will get, is that this is intended to be a cooperative effort. And we do have a small charge for, for, the, um, for the courses and things. We want to make them available to anybody and not have economics be an issue. So we actually have people who do have economic needs who have offered scholarships. So people who can't afford, we actually have scholarships that we give to them. We haven't turned anybody down yet that has an economic need. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and the goal is to get this to where it is a world-changing sort of effort, to where people can learn by working with others. But that's not where it ends, John, because the other piece is the most important piece. It isn't just the learning. Because it wouldn't be a colonomic action. It would just be a colonomic learning. Instead, we want people to do something with that. So we're encouraging our members to help others. Everybody has to be a teacher at some level. And we all have something that we can teach. So we ask them to reach down to others. We call ourselves a city of on a hill mentality where the city's bright and you can see it, but the, the hill is reaching down to others to teach them to do the same thing and to collaboratively. So if, if you have you know, that neighborhood example I gave before. If, if you've got this basement aquaculture system, you don't want to just have your own. You want to reach out to all your neighbors and say, let me teach you how to do it so you can have one too. And I'm not the big, the big king of learning how to do it. I've got a guy that I plug into who teaches every week. So you can do that also. And you can come along with me on this journey. So the idea is to not just be learners, but to be doers also. I'm sitting here stunned at just the breadth of this and what this could potentially do if the information is out there and people realize that this is available. I mean, I often have chats with people and I'd say, well, imagine that kind of information was available um, in schools or in colleges or whatever, you know, and I'm bemoaning the fact that it's difficult to access information such as this. Well, here it is right at our fingertips in a literal sense heading towards every hour of every day and people can just tap into it as simply as that. It's stunning, Wayne. Well, and hopefully we can continue with it. And, and right now we're so excited and we're, we are growing. I think we're going to hit some you know, bumps in the road. Every business does. And the bumps are going to be mainly as we try to scale it um, because we're going to need more and more help. We have to have more and more people engaged. And, you know, anytime you get bigger that way, you then have administrative things you've got to do too. Mm. And we haven't talked a lot about my past, but that's part of my background. I, I built big companies. Back when I was in that financial mentality mode, I was building companies that are, you know, a couple of them, you know, 10,000 employees and some and some large, large number of people. And I still feel like that's going to be my best role down the road. It isn't going to be teaching the courses like I've been doing to this point, but it's to help manage what is going to be a hopefully a, a big infrastructure. And here's one last thing, you because you just said it. 
we're just now beginning to focus on a little younger. Um, to this point, we've focused on people that are probably at least, you know, college age and higher, um, and even um, even more so on those that have, that are probably out of college, out in the work world already, or didn't go to college and just went right from any kind of education into a working situation. But we want to focus more on those that are high school and college age. And here's a sad reality of advanced education today. It's really expensive. Mm. We hope this is not. We think we can make it where it doesn't need to be. And the reason it doesn't need to be is we don't have to have a bunch of brick and mortar schools that cost all kinds of money. I, I was a college professor. I, I, I've taught, I've been in that mode and I'm, I, I'm, I love it. And I, I enjoyed my time with it. But right now I think it's broken. When you have to have to pay $100,000 to go through four years of college in, in many places in the world, and you're in debt for the next 10 or 15 or even year, more years afterwards, and worse yet, you maybe haven't even been able to get a job in whatever field that you got that education in. Mm. That means that something's broken. So our goal is to make it to where we provide these this education with mentoring, with collaboration, to where it is the way education used to be. It used to be that when you finished even elementary school back in the, you know, before the Industrial Revolution, you had an interaction with that teacher that you had maybe the rest of your life. You lived in the same community with the teacher. You could go back to the teacher and ask for help. The teacher was willing to give it to you. Well, today, most students that finish their bachelor's degrees or their master's degrees, as soon as they're done, that's the last interaction they have with those professors or those instructors that they had. And those instructors don't even attempt at all to reach out to them. And if the student is going to get any interaction, they have to take the effort to go back to the, the coaches and, the, and you know, the teachers. Well, I, and notice I just used a word. They aren't coaches because coaches care. Coaches continue to work with people for long periods of time. Yeah. The other part about me, I'm an athlete and I've always been one. And the part that I love about athletics is that very rarely do you have a coach for some period of time. You have a coach for life. Yeah. There isn't anybody that I ever learned to do something I do athletically that I don't feel like if they're still alive that I can't go back and still get some help from them. Um, and and that's not the way we're doing things in education systems today. We're, we're truly people are teachers and they aren't really coaching. So I hope we can do more of that with the economic action team. I think if we're successful, others will see that what we're doing is working and they'll maybe bring it back into our more organized educational and academic sectors. And we're so we're not just trying to exclude universities. We're actually trying to work with them and say, you know what, we think what you're doing is broken. We're going to continue to do what we're doing, and if you like what we're doing, hopefully you'll come our way, and maybe you'll 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 take it on. Also, we're not doing anything proprietary. We don't want this just to be us. We think people could teach music this way, and could be teaching math this way, and, you know, other topics, um, and 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 that's what somebody else would would do with it. So that's where that collaboration and uh, cooperative sort of learning comes in. Well, I think you're blazing a trail yes, in that regard. Exactly. I mean, the, the key thing is clearly action. And that's what you're doing. You're taking action. And as I said, blazing a trail. And I'm just thinking here as we're speaking, what a world it will be in 
10, 20, 30 years time if more and more people come on board to these methods and see that they truly are working. It's a far more organic and more holistic, we can use whatever number of adjectives we want to describe it, but a much better way of doing things and something that works to bring us right full circle for you, for me and for everybody simultaneously. It's a real symbiosis and I think it's just incredible stuff. Yeah, and I think part of the reason it can work today, John, and maybe it even couldn't 10 years ago, is because of what we're doing right now, using the internet. We're we're on Skype. You know, we can communicate. I can it sounds like you're sitting right next to me. You're you would just be like, you know, an instructor that was standing next to a blackboard when I was going through school in my younger age, and yet yeah. you're at a distance. Um, and we don't have our video cams on now, but we could and to where we could be showing, we could be not just talking to each other, we could be showing people things. We could sure. be, I could be walking, instead of me just talking about those ponds, I could be walking around them and reaching down and showing you the fish. I could pick them up in my hands with a net and you could see that they're going, well, we couldn't do that 10 years ago. We, the world is flat today. And I am so enthused that our community is worldwide. Some of my best friends who I have never met live and I interact with literally daily, um, Leslie Laws in Spain, um, who's doing a crowdfunding right now. You know, she she and I talk some way, either by text or by by Skype or by Facebook or by my courses that we're teaching and that she's at literally daily. And I've never met her live. And yet I feel like she's my sister, you know, and I could go to Spain and I can visit with her live anytime I want. My virtual assistant who helped set this up, Arib, um, in Pakistan, yeah. again, feels like he's my son. He actually plays on the, the Pakistani national rugby team and he, he's a master's student in, um, in business. And he works for me in the middle of his night, which is the middle of my day because he's 12 hours different. Yeah. And he's a completely different culture than I am. And yet I feel like he's my son. You know, how much better can it get than that, John? I mean, that, that's, that's what we need to be doing, I think, around the world. And, and the, the, the connectivity of technology is helping us do that. Absolutely. When it's used in the right way, it's such a tool and a force for good. And I think that's exactly what you're doing. It's what we're doing right now. And for those people out there who want more of this, and I know there are many, tell us about the websites and how people can get in touch and what they need to do to find out more about EAT. Thank you. Thanks for asking. Um, very, very simple. Um, our website is www.eatcommunity. Eat community. And that's really descriptive of it. Eatcommunity.com. So if you go there, um, it's, it's just a simple one-page site where it gives you two options. You can, you can click on one place where it says learn more. And you can learn about our economic action team free. We call it the eat free team. If you click on that, you'll come to one other page and you'll just put in your name, your email address, and you will be a member. And you'll start to get information about how to come to these live free sessions. It's that simple. If you decide you want to get into our paid version, which is the other button, you can click on that page where it says learn more. And that's called the elite economic action team you can click there too and we actually have trials for that we have all kinds of specials at different times so right now there's one where you can actually for for less than a cup of copy for two dollars so for two dollars for the first 30 days 
um, you can be a member and you can check it out. And if at the end of the 30 days you say, ah, this isn't for me, um, then you don't pay anything more. You just have to cancel and get out. If you decide to continue, then it's $75 a month. But remember, I said before, if you have an economic need, you can get a scholarship. And we're just starting a student program that we're going to roll out. And I'll just say this. This is the first time I've said it publicly. If you are a high school or a college student, it's actually going to be $9.99 a month. So it's $75 wow. for others, but it'll be $9.99. Those are U.S. dollars. So all you got to do is go to eatcommunity.com, or I'll give you a U.S. phone number. You can call. Um, you can Skype, whatever. My Skype idea is ID is dr doctor dr economics, and you can uh, you can get just put that onto Skype and ask me for a connection, and we can connect. Our U.S. phone number is plus one three zero three four nine five three seven zero five. That's probably the hardest way to reach us, just because if you're international, it'd be a maybe a cost. And then my email address is very simply Wayne, which is my first name, W-A-Y-N-E, at economics. Very strange word. So it's a combination of ecology and economy. So E-C-O-L-O-N-O-M-I-C-S dot org. I have a second email address, and they'll both get to me. This one's easier. It's called just my name, Wayne Dorband at gmail.com. So that, that's the easier one, but you can reach me either of those ways. But what I'd encourage, just join for free. Get in and become an Eat Free member, eatcommunity.com. Check it out. No risk. If you don't like it, you don't have to even deal with it if you love it. If you love it, then I hope you start watching some things. You're, you're going to find where you can get into our webinars on a, a daily basis. We have them every day. Um, and you can watch those for free. Um, you, you do register separately for the, those, but all the instructions about how to do that is there. So that's the best way. Connect, John. And so many people will love it. There's so much to love about it. I must say, this has been an entirely energetic interaction for me. I have the power. You have the power. We have the power. Dr. Wayne Dorban, thank you so much for joining me on Al- Alchemy. I really hope we can do this again. It's incredible, the work that you're doing. John, thank you. I appreciate it. And uh, you're doing some great things. I've I've had a chance to review several of your alchemy um, episodes. And by the way, the way we met everybody is that his brother, Stevie, is a member of our community. And John's actually gotten, and Stevie thought, you know what? Our community ought to hear about this. And so there's an example of that collaboration. And that, that's that exactly the way it will continue. So I really look forward to speaking again, both on air and off air, Wayne. And I've, I've been blown away by this. Thank you again. Thank you. You're doing a great job yourself, John. Thank you. Alchemy, 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 alchemy. I hope you've enjoyed this week's episode of Alchemy. Remember, we rely on donations to keep the show in its current free and advertising-free format and are very grateful for any help you can offer. We have no fixed cost on donations and it all helps. So, for example, if you could spare even the price of a cup of coffee every month, it would go a long way towards keeping us afloat. Our donate button is on the website and your support and assistance is hugely appreciated. And you can also donate via Patreon and you'll find the button on the website there as well. Thank you to everyone for your recent help and support. We couldn't do it without you. Until the next time, I have the power, you have the power, we have the power.
Thank you. Um, as I said before, this is um, for me is a very special night, and uh, so I decided to invite uh, some um, friends from Italy. And uh, I decided to invite a group. It's a string group from the town of Romeo and Juliet. It's from Verona, and uh, they are fantastic. And I would like you to welcome. I virtuosi italiani. Thank you.